Is it the right move to give Ukraine tanks? Has Adam Schiff been done dirty? And how important is it that Illinois students learn about black queer studies? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Jack Butler, and the notorious MBD, Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is Dividend Cafe. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, it has finally happened. After a long running debate, the West is going to give Ukraine tanks. There was a little bit of a diplomatic tap dance here. Clearly, the Germans, who are the uh, linchpin here, because they uh, they manufacture these these leopard tanks that uh, they could give to Ukraine. More importantly, there are other countries like Poland. Uh, wanted to give them to Ukraine, but they needed German permission, and the Germans weren't going to give them permission until they got air cover from the United States saying that we would give Ukrainians tanks ourselves. So the Biden administration has finally said it's going to do that. We're going to give them our, uh, our uh, quite fantastic M1 Abrams tank and a, uh, an up-to-date version of it. And apparently uh, the reporting is we're going to manufacture these things new and give them to the Ukrainians, which is going to take, I don't know, a year or something. It's going to take forever. So the Pentagon has never been on board this and still may be slow walking it, but it has un- unlocked leopards, which might be more easily uh, uh, operable for, for Ukrainians for, for a bunch of reasons and uh, sh- should get there sooner. What do you make of it? Well, I make what I make of it is, um, you know, the there's been a you know for the past two months there's been another battlefield reversal for Ukraine where Russia is gaining territory. Um, you know, it wasn't really covered in the news, although you could see hints of it in in things like um, you know the slightly panicked editorial written by Condoleezza Rice and uh, Robert Gates uh, about the need to get more heavy heavy weaponry. Uh, into Ukraine, um, you know, it's, <laughs> this is an escalation. This is another, um, this is another line that uh, Joe Biden indicated earlier in the year that he wouldn't cross. And now we're crossing it. Um, and again, there's like this kind of um, step up, uh, reluctant step up in, in uh, assistance to Ukraine which I, I'm not sure how to interpret. I'm not sure if, if uh, you know, is it because it sort of betrays a lack of confidence in our own strategy that we constantly reverse our word on what we're going to give or not give, whether it's Germany or the United States. Um, you know, is this an investment with real conviction behind it? Um, like you said, it, it could take a long time for these Abrams tanks to come in, but... Um, you know, you're having in the last two months, we've, we've, uh, in December, we upgraded the nuclear weapons that we have stationed in Romania, um, and in Turkey and in other parts of Europe. Um, you know, it, we were putting the 101st airborne into Romania, uh, 101st is reentering Europe for the first time since world war two. Um, you know, this looks like, uh, continued escalation and buildup. I don't know what, um, what the limit next limit is. So Jack, obviously MBD and I have our differences on, on this, on, on this one. I just don't see what it is inherently about tanks that, that's going to necessarily escalate the war. And it, it seems as though it's uh, another instance of uh, Biden, you know, that there's a cause for, for, you know, be, being cautious here and, and thoughtful, but the pattern has been a lot of foot dragging and then finally saying, oh, okay, yeah, w- we will give this to you. So sort of raises the question, why didn't you just give it to them sooner? And there's a, a potential, you know, could have made a difference in the, the, the fall. If this decision had, had happened sooner, um, you'd have more tanks on the ground to make a difference in the, the spring here. But unfortunately, I mean, MBD keeps on warning, which is true. We're in a proxy war with Russia, but I don't know how to avoid, you know, we're in a proxy war with Russia. And I don't know how we uh, uh, get out of it sh- short of... Um, uh, really not knocking the, the legs out from under the Ukrainians. Yeah, Rich, you're right that some some degree of caution 
and reservation are, are both warranted. Like the, the 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 hesitation that that led us not to back the imposition of a no fly zone, for example, that that sort of drastic action. I am glad that, and it's good for U.S. interests that we have not taken those sort of extreme mm-hmm. steps that would right. have just dramatically involved the U.S. here, but. Uh, beyond that, the the Biden pattern has been a weird sort of. Uh, there are a lot of Republicans who are, who have criticized, uh, or not not a lot. There's a group of Republicans in in the House, especially, who criticized uh, U.S. Uh, support of Ukraine for being excessive. But I, I think there's this is one of the instances where, as you said, there the the fault of Biden here is actually the foot dragging the. Um, delaying of things that he ends up doing anyway at a point where they m- aren't as useful as they might have been before. And that pattern seems to kind of produce a worse of both worlds situation uh, where you you don't do the thing that you should do in the first place and then you do it later where where it's not as effective as it would have been and you get people mad at you both for doing too much mm-hmm. and for not doing enough. And so we know, I mean, if you look at Biden's foreign policy record throughout his long and storied and classified document-filled tenure, he seems to usually be on the wrong side or have the wrong timing about almost everything, every issue that he's touched. And uh, I think that the... So I think U.S. interests and Ukraine interests overlap considerably. They are not identical, but the... I really hope that that a Biden-led uh, U.S. government is capable of not screwing up another foreign policy issue that I think is essential to our time. And I, the the record is not it's not super inspiring. It's not disastrous, but we're still muddling along in a way that really seems to prolong this uh, this situation, not resolve it meaningfully. And that that worries me because that that sort of that sort of outcome ultimately advantage, advantages the Russian side. Charlie? I think that Biden's done a really good job on Ukraine. I think that Mitch McConnell's done a good job on Ukraine too in his legislative role. But Biden's the president, and I think he has largely got it right. I'm in favor of sending the tanks, but I do think it is worth acknowledging that even if it doesn't seem as if it would make much sense for that particular decision to be the one that was treated as an unacceptable escalation, it does at least get us closer there. And the the story of our support for Ukraine thus far has been a story of escalation. Again, I support that escalation up to a point. But I see this a little bit like I see domestic legislation where you know people will try and find the exact point at which a given in- incursion is unacceptable. They will say to anyone who believes, for example, that taxes are acceptable but too high taxes are unacceptable, well, where is your line? And it's quite difficult to answer it. Is it 1%? Is it 5%? Is it 12%? Is it 17%? But at a certain point, they say a percent and you yelp. You say, yeah, actually. And every time you add 1% or 2% to the tax rate, then it gets closer to the point mm-hmm. at which it's oppressive. Yeah. And I think that the same is true of foreign policy. It's quite difficult to work out exactly where that line is. It's also not our call, of course, because we're trying to avoid someone else making that determination. But there is going to be a point at which we are materially involved in a way that may well be justifiable and that I may well support, but that the Russians would be forgiven for hollering at. And I therefore do understand why those who disagree with me on the tanks are nervous about us moving bit by bit closer to that point because this does get us closer to it rather than further away and um you know when i say that joe biden's done a good job i think he has or his administration has i don't know the extent to which he is the brains behind it he's all he's the he's the the ultimate 
um, decision maker here. I think he has done a good job of balancing the moral imperative and strategic imperative, an American imperative to help Ukraine with a, a broader understanding of mm-hmm. the risks uh, yeah. in, a, in a way that, that actually is, um, is admirable. Yeah, I think you make good points, Charlie. And, and I don't want to dismiss entirely the idea that there should be any consideration, right? It just Ukraine asked for it, we should give it to them, which is the attitude of some people. And and the way I look at the kind of the escalation question, though, is Ukraine has tanks, you know, and you're giving them slightly better tanks. It's not as though you're introducing a, a new a new weapon into this arena, you know, giving them hypersonic missiles to hit the outskirts of, of uh, Moscow, you know, which would be uh, obviously a major escalation. But I also take your point, you know, this is, it's incremental, incremental, incremental. So MBD, well, feel free throw, to respond. Yeah, go well, ahead. Can I throw one the thing? You know, there's another element to this, which is that, you know, um, Poland is, is kind of the most anxious to kind of offload these Leopard 2 tanks into Ukraine. And, you know, you could look at it in another way that this isn't entirely just about Ukraine, right? That, um, you know, Leopard 2 tanks were featured in the Syrian war and Russian anti-tank missiles were found able to destroy them, right? Like 1970s era anti-tank missiles from Russia were able to destroy the Leopards. Meanwhile, Poland is planning on replacing these tanks with like Korean made Black Panthers, Mm-hmm. Um, in the long run. And so in some ways, like what you're seeing too is Poland saying like, okay, we, we can kind of give this away. And in the heat of the moment, we can also lobby, you know, the United States or other powers to kind of backfill some of our weaponry with the more advanced stuff that we well, want. That was sort in the of an term. element of the, wasn't that an element uh, of the MIG debate as well? They, they were like, oh, we're, we're going to give. Absolutely. Yeah, they want we'll get they better ones. Yeah, we're going to get. Rid- I've had nothing but admiration for the canny statesmanship of of the polls <laughs> during this period. Yeah, uh, <laughs> although although it hasn't gotten them out of trouble with the EU on the rule of law stuff, so they're still like willing to do culture war on Poland there. Um, but anyway, the, the, there's anyway there's more than meets uh, than meets the eyes uh, to some of these transactions, and you know maybe it won't make a, a huge battlefield difference to uh, to Ukraine but you know in the meantime but, Poland and others are like re- are are taking this as a chance to rearm with better tech I mean mm-hmm. it is ultimately arbitrary and as a result unless we want to deal with the consequences we do need to be careful and the point of us sending tanks is to help the Ukrainians win so the Russians will sit there and they will say well you know, that was one of the factors that helped the Ukrainians win, if indeed that's where this mm-hmm. ends up, which I hope that it does. And and if it, yeah. But this, this sort of goes to the debate MBD and I are having a back and forth uh, on the corner is um, I, there's not, there's not a great alternative to, I, I don't think, I think the Ukrainians are way over optimistic. Like we'll give you three, give us 300 tanks. We're going to win. And that's not going to happen. But I don't think there's any alternative to backing them such that they can make gains that hopefully will convince the Russians, okay, let, let's let's take what I we agree. have now. Yeah. Um, but just finding – this is my problem with – with, um, and I may be distorting, and if so, just correct me because it's inadvertent. Um, I think you want to fine-tune it more, MBD, in a way that's going to be the level of support that's hard, hard to s- sustain or, or harder to get right than this more perhaps simplistic approach. It is. It, listen, it, it is hard. Like I said, I mean, like I said in our debate, I would have done the last fourteen years a bit differently to try to right. avoid. I think this that's, war. Best, that's your best. That's the best case but, to try to avoid, I, avoid the war. But having having inherited it, I still think the the my my read on the situation is still that you know Russia. This is dearer to Russia's interest than to mm-hmm. America's, mm-hmm. and so they will always be willing to sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And more, and take much uh, more serious and and risks mm-hmm. than we will. Uh, and so, you know, I, I would be trying to pursue a strategy that ended the war faster rather than let it go on. And and yeah, that means I'm more indifferent to how much territory of, of is lost. Again. Yeah, right. <clears throat> and and again, yeah, I mean, two like, ways to end a war, Michael. And but there's also like. <laughs> There's also like my conviction that 
Like I, I think <laughs> governing the Donbass seems like a curse. So mm-hmm. in, in some ways, like, um, you know, I, I, even if Russia gains territory from this and, and has a win on paper, I think it's going to be so costly, mm-hmm. so unpleasant, uh, that it it's not like they're going to go from the Donbass and say, okay, on to Estonia next. I, I think this mm-hmm. is, this whole thing has been a debacle for Russia. Yeah. So Jack Butler, asks a question to you. By the end of the year, there will be some sort of uh, settlement or temporary armistice in Ukraine. Yes or no? Well, I, I was talking about this with friends of mine at the end of last year, and I, I sort of foolishly predicted yes. And now I'm wondering if that was wildly over-optimistic. But you know what? I'll stick to my guns. I'll say, yes, with the caveat that it'll, it'll be unsatisfying to everyone, and it'll probably not fully end uh, the sort mm-hmm. of little green men-style hostilities that Ukraine has had to deal with for yeah. almost a decade now. So that's, right. that's so, what I'll so be. You got a yes. You got to be careful. You don't want to blotch your, your uh, sterling record from the... <laughs> Senate, the Senate race. You got the Senate landscape, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Charlie Cook. Charlie, by the way, you, you used to way back when be kind of hesitant to discuss foreign policy matters on this podcast. And, and you're ma- slowly making this transition to this really canny, prudent geopolitical analyst. It's really it's Well, impressive. it helps that he has an accent. I think that's the key. <laughs> I do not think that on that time frame there will be an armistice. And Medip. Um, I mean, last year, at the beginning of the war, I thought in a year, Russia would be able to claim some kind of victory in the east uh, of Ukraine. uh, And that hasn't come to be. Um, But for all the... I'm with Jack. I actually don't think this is going to be the long... I'm not sure this is going to be a long war. Uh, I'm not sure that Ukraine can hold up... um, the economic damage it's suffering and the the way its government seems to be falling apart at the seams under the pressure. Um, so I think, I think we may see, uh, you know, su- suing for peace at this some point this year. I hope you and Jack are right. I'm going to say no, though. I think we're in for a, a, a st- stalemate on the, the battlefield of war continues on. With that, let's pause and hear from our sponsor this episode, the Bonson Group. The state of today's economy seems confusing, vulnerable, and even concerning to many. And that has widespread implications, not just for business owners, job seekers, and consumers, but also for investors. This is where our friends at the Bonson Group come in to provide solutions, clarity, and wisdom in the monetary, fiscal, and geopolitical instability of our day, led by our own David Bonson. The Monson Group manages over $4 billion client capital and has become the leading independent private wealth management firm in the country, guiding investors positive returns in 2020, even as the stock market wallowed in a bear market. Their deep commitment to a dividend growth investing to a philosophical foundation that is not shaken and stirred by the headlines of the day. Warrant your attention. Check out DividendCafe.com to learn more about the Bonson Group today. You'll find free weekly economic commentary at DividendCafe.com. And if you're interested in learning more about the Bonson Group, you can do so from that website. So go to DividendCafe.com for your antidote to the laziness and groupthink of today's index investing and sanity and discover a more bespoke and tailored solution worthy of your portfolio and financial needs. Again, DividendCafe.com. So, Jack Butler, we have high drama on Capitol Hill where Kevin McCarthy is excluding three Democrats from uh, committees. Ilan Omar is off the Foreign Affairs Committee. I think that's correct, right? And Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff off the Intelligence Committee, there was a a press conference where the affected Democrats excoriated Kevin McCarthy for this. And the worst thing in the the world, they're getting death threats and McCarthy wants death threats against them, basically wants to kill them, not just exclude them from these these committees. But the the true and reasonable thing they said, and Eric Swalwell said, this is tit for tat retaliation. Like, yeah, (laughs) of course it is. As everyone pointed out, when Nancy Pelosi did this to Republicans, if Republicans Republicans took control. They do it uh, to to Democrats, and here we are. 
Yeah, I have a bit of a detached uh, Dr. Manhattan on the planet Mars take on this situation, which is that actually everyone is enjoying this. Uh, Kevin McCarthy is enjoying uh, keeping these these Democrats off of these committees. Uh, I think these choices are defensible on the merits, uh, particularly in the case of Swalwell. But also, mm-hmm. those Democrats are enjoying the the spectacle of being able to claim victim status for a new cycle. Mm-hmm. It's good for everybody. Everybody gets to have uh, gets to go in front of those those uh, array of microphones and. Uh, complain and or uh, rejoice over the action and yeah it's the, the as you said the tit for tat thing is real but okay <laughs> the tit for tat thing is real like uh this it reminds me in a sense of the the way that that people got mad at at newt gingrich when he first started transforming the uh, the House of Representatives, after all of these years of uh, you know respectable propriety, yeah, well, all those years of respectable propriety were years of democratic dominance of the House. So, I am not like, especially Dominic Pino has has done a great job arguing about this that uh, you know shenanigans in the House of Representatives are not really inherently a bad thing. I mean, it's it was always meant and designed to be something of a messy body. And to have to play host to this kind of thing, and I, I'm not really that bothered by it, uh, particularly in as much as it, uh, in the case of certain of these Democrats, keeps uh, keeps these committees in in safer positions than they might be otherwise, or, or more reliable positions. So there's my right, th- so that's there's my a jaded, jaded, cynical view from Jack. Well, so. it's jaded and cynical, or just perhaps stoic and uh, and realistic. Uh, yeah, take your pick. Pick your adjectives. So, Charlie, I think there's, uh, if we're going to do this on the merits, there's, there's a you know, good case against Omar and Swalwell. Schiff, even though he was totally dishonest, I, I think it's a more difficult case. I mean, this is, this is a, top, a, a top Democrat. And for me, the principle, uh, the practice should be just a, a party gets to pick which of its members go on, on which committees, and the other party should accept it. But we, we breached yeah, but this uh, in the prior Congress. I'm com- Completely with Jack Butler. Someone's going to sample that and use it in inappropriate circumstances. Mm-hmm. This is the one and only <laughs> time. I'm completely with Jack Butler. I think everyone is enjoying playing their part. The Democrats began this trend. They knew when they did it that the Republicans would follow suit. The Republicans have now followed suit. And the Democrats, that they have singled out are loving it i have a piece in the paper this morning pretending that they're being silenced people in politics love saying they're being silenced in the paper <laughs> one of the singled out characters schiff is going to use it to raise money so that he can run for the senate in california big win Alien Omar gets to tell everyone that the Republicans are big racist meanies who won't let an African serve on the African committee. I love it. But, you know, I just think that this is a good example of the rules being for everyone. I don't care about this in the slightest. I don't care about this in the slightest because there's no constitutional question at stake. The House gets to set its own rules. And because the on the merits question was resolved the moment the Democrats took the step that they did a couple of years ago. And when you change the rules, you should expect your opponents to use those rules as well. So it would be pretty good, I think, if we run through this latest round of amateur dramatics and then both parties can get together and say maybe we won't do this again maybe they could even pass a resolution in the house which wouldn't be permanently binding but would at least give them something to stick to mbd Uh, we we have brewing uh, unanimity here always a danger yeah i'm i'm with i'm with the other guys i mean the i i have no problem with this I probably wouldn't have done it to Omar if it was if it was me because uh, I think her. I I mean because I think the Swalwell and Schiff offenses are actually worse. 
Um, so the, the shift offense is the dishonesty or are there additional offenses? Yeah, is the the dishonesty and and basically the abuse of his position on the committee, right? As Yeah. Because people pretty believe, bad. People believed that he was right, right, right. he had access Walls are closing in. Right. He had access to intelligence that backed up his insane claims, and he knew where, that. Where you'd and say you'd say Omar is just you know it might be noxious views, but it's just views, noxious views, but and and also like one of the views, one of the views that supposedly is the one McCarthy is talking about is one for which she apologized in a very public way. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's you know I I, I don't like Ilan Omar that all that much, um, but I think Swal I mean Swalwell shouldn't be near elected office, but he especially shouldn't be near mm-hmm. anything sensitive yeah, and absolutely. shift the same. And, and I think that they've, you know, you can argue that they've abused their position or, or have proven themselves unfit in a way. And so if, if this is the new standard in the house, I think this, this is more justifiable than anything that was done to, you know, Marjorie Taylor green. Um, All right. So you're, you're setting up the exit question. Yeah. Go ahead, Jack. Oh, sorry. I was just saying maybe it's a uh, white supremacy on the Democrats part. that They're defending uh, Schiff and Swalwell, but not really going to bat. So Jack Butler, double barreled exit question for you first. So Charlie ra- raises possibility. Do you think somewhere along the line here, ne- next Congress, whatever the parties will get together and say, you know what, this, this was just a bad idea. We never should have gone down this road. We're going to declare a truce and everyone gets to pick their uh, committee assignments for the members. Again, that's uh, question number one, question number two, MBD mentioned MT. G, who was w- one of the uh, uh, victims of the, the Pelosi committee bans and has now you know, tried to go a little more respectable. She backed Kevin McCarthy. She was working the floor for Kevin McCarthy, shoving uh, Donald Trump phone calls in, in people's dissenters' faces and whatnot. And there was a report uh, this week that she, she wants to be uh, Trump's VP selection. So early uh, percentage odds on MTG being Trump's uh, VP selection from zero. I was never going to happen. This is crazy. She's dreaming to 100%. She's a lock. So we got truce on committee assignments and MTG odds of being on the ticket, if assuming Trump's a nominee. No truce and no MTG, 30%. Not, not impossible, but unlikely. I think even Trump realizes that he needs at least the, the semblance of balance on his... Uh, hypothetical mm-hmm. ticket and so he'll, he'll go not, more more he'll go more establishment yeah kind of. like an elise stefanik or something mm-hmm. like that or christy gnome you know these people who are toadies of him but at least uh are not totally alienating to the broader electorate all right that's good i, th- I think it's a good answer we got a no truce charlie and a 30 percent for mtg so unfortunately, I jumped out the window when you said Marjorie Taylor <laughs> Greene, Donald Trump vice president. The term is defenestrate. We don't get to use that word enough. Auto uh, defenestration. I don't think there will be a truce, although there should be. And I think the chance of Marjorie Taylor Greene being Donald Trump's vice presidential nominee, if indeed he is the nominee, uh, is very low, maybe 10%. 10. All right. So we got two no truces, a 30 and a 10 MBD. Yeah, I I would go no truce. I think this is at least going to go for two more uh, changes of control of Congress. And and on MTG as VP, I I don't see it. I mean, I, I could see... Donald Trump going down a list of people being like, oh, Tulsi, uh, Carrie Lake, uh, MTG's on the list, but I think she'd be very low. She doesn't add anything um, that he really needs. So I, I, I'd actually put it like under 2%. Wow. Okay. We got a, a 30 and a 10 and an under 2. On MTG first, I would say, uh, yeah, it's it's low, but I think it's it's not – crazy and totally impossible. I mean, the problem um, she, she's going to have is that if Trump's the nominee, he's dominant in the party, everyone's going to be bending that way again, and there are going to be a lot uh, uh, more appealing figures who, who are going to make themselves available. So the odds are pretty, pretty low. I'll, I'll go somewhere in between, though, um, where you guys have been 20%. And I think there will. I think there will be 
a truce on the committee assignments. So with that, quick plug for Interplus Digital Subscription Service at nationalreview.com your way around our meter paywall, which you no longer have to worry about if you just give in and sign up. Your way to see 90% fewer ads, especially many uh, less uh, annoying, obnoxious pop-up style ads. If you sign up for Interplus and log in, you also got to log in. That's an important step. Your way to dig deeper into our community. You can comment on articles and blog posts. You can be part of our private Facebook group where we have a really robust community, if that floats your boat, and get invited to exclusive calls and events. We just did one of these. Uh, when was it? Was it earlier this week? Time runs, runs together for me. Uh, Charlie, MBD, and I uh, do these calls once a month with Plus members, small groups, you know, 70, 80, 90, uh, so we can have uh, a pretty free, free-flowing exchange of, of comments and, and ideas and, and questions. These things are always wonderful. People, people love, love them, um, participating in them, as far as we can tell, and, and we love doing them as well. So anyway, uh, Plus great deal. And then finally, it's a really uh, important way to support our valuable journalism. So if you haven't signed up already, please get on your horse, go do it, pause this podcast and sign up or sign up right afterwards or just sign up sometime. I'm not going to be picky about the time. NR Plus, please join if you're not already a member, tens of thousands of of your fellow NR readers as a member of NR Plus. So Charlie, we have the further permutations of the of Florida controversy, which again, we could say pretty, pretty much every other day, it's just the controversy that changes. But we talked about this earlier the week, earlier in the week, DeSantis said no to the AP pilot AP African Americans study course. And, and one of the kind of best sort of easiest uh, hits against this course is, is there's a, uh, an element of it devoted to black queer studies, like why, why are we going to have public high school students uh, wasting their time with black queer studies? And, uh, but sure enough, uh, the governor of Illinois says, uh, Governor Pritzker says, you know what, I'm rejecting this uh, pilot course if it doesn't have black queer studies in it. So you have this kind of Mexican standoff where uh, encouragingly, the college board was saying, oh, you know what, we're, we're going to do these really hasty revisions, uh, just n- not not because we're getting pressured from Ron DeSantis, but just because this, this, this course is, 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 was, never, was never set in stone. We're, ju- we're just going to do some changes right now, even though you know, it's supposed to be a two-year pilot uh, program and we're a year in or whatever it is. And that, that seemed encouraging because at least it would make it better. But now you have Pritzker saying, uh, no, <laughs> actually, don't change it at all. Double down your black queer studies. We need Illinois uh, students to really know about uh, the history of black queers in the United States of America. What do you make of it? Well, I, I don't like the course, and I think Florida was right on the merits. But I think this shows that different states can make different decisions. And if this is what the people of Illinois want, they certainly elected their governor then they should get it. Public schools are public. The curricula are supposed to be set and scrutinized by state government, by school boards that are created by the state government, and ultimately by parents. And if we have a country in which a state such as Florida thinks this is lunacy and a state such as Illinois thinks this is mandatory, then fine. It's really none of my business as a Floridian, one thing I think is messy here is that these courses seem to be compiled by a national body. And so you now have what you would describe in the law as a circuit split, in effect, where one state says, we will not use this course unless it lacks X, Y, or Z, whereas another state says we will not use this course unless it includes X, Y, or Z. In the long run, if we're going to see this sort of divergence, we're going to need a different body, maybe multiple bodies, tasked with contriving the courses because we can't really have one or a few national institutions if the states are going to disagree this profoundly. But... Yeah, I've made my views about this clear as a parent and as a voter, but I'm not a parent or a voter in Illinois. And if I want my views to be taken seriously 
in my state, then I just have to accept that things are going to be different elsewhere. So MBD, what's happened, and Stanley Kurtz, our colleague, has been all over this from from the beginning, you know, points out the College Board has basically smuggled in a national curriculum. It's become a, a de facto national curriculum. And the problem is it is part of the blob uh, that this, this African-American studies course was developed in conjunction with all sorts of African-American studies scholars, which means it's going to have the same biases of, as all these uh, uh, college and, and university uh, programs. But, but this, this uh, opens up the possibility that just this kind of de facto national curriculum will no longer be sustainable because you'd, you'd think, uh, oh, just to have a, a tailored program for uh, Florida and a tailored one for Illinois, but it's more complicated than that because kind of the, the big point of these AP courses is the exam at the end. And uh, all this sort of curriculum stuff is and exams, it's, it's, it's a really complicated undertaking. Uh, it's it's uh, easier said than done. And, you know, having separate distinct programs for each state would be really hard, which just raises the prospect that the College Board, this project of its, uh, of its might just fall by the wayside. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, this, is, this is massive stakes for the College Board, which has relied on the consent of all the states that participate, which is, which is pretty much all of them, uh, I think. I mean, there was some... Uh, dust kicked up in a decade ago over some AP American history course changes in the red states, but ultimately the, all those states accepted the course. So the college board has been able to go on, but now being a, an academic institution kind of allied with colleges and serving as a bridge from public high school to college it's been under pressure to introduce these studies courses into high schools, whether it's African-American studies, gender studies, women's studies, maybe queer studies in the future. And it's, it's testing the waters with African-American studies at precisely the time that conservatives are mounting a kind of counter-revolutionary effort on education uh, and where Ron DeSantis has been a leader. So, the the ship is finally crashing into you know the, this this uh, uh, continent wide ship is crashing into federalism now and I'm not sure it it can survive or it should I mean we are seeing I think broadly in America with um, the the now voucherized system in Arizona and I think Iowa voted this week to move toward just giving parents. Eight thousand mm-hmm. dollars to get dedicated to education, if they want. Um, I, we are seeing the the cultural disintegration um, that must lead towards breakup of the public education monopoly. Right. So I, I think this is just more evidence of it that as um, the American public school system kind of reached its you know apogee of strength right after World War II. Right at the height of an American consensus about mm-hmm. what American culture is, what American education should be, what citizenship should be like. And it's kind of survived on the ghost of that until now. And now it's breaking apart. And now, you know, I think we are faced with something more like, you know, uh, going towards the model that's more common in Europe and elsewhere where, uh, Schools are run by churches or other groups that have a kind of specific idea in mind that isn't shared nationally. Um, I, I'm 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 happy to see the breakup of the college board's uh, power and influence because it was only going to be used for uh, the most left wing project uh, possible in colonizing American high schools. So Jack Butler, moving on to another culture war topic. There's this. Famous Colorado baker, didn't want to be famous, famous now, Jack Phillips. And what he does, he has two main occupations. One is crafting really extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily uh, beautiful and exquisite cakes and defend attempting to defend his uh, uh, conscious rights and, and free speech rights uh, from constant uh, assault. So the, the latest uh, assault, he, he won a partial victory in the Supreme Court in the, the prior one. 
then a, uh, a trans person uh, came came after him and uh, correct me if you know these details better than I do, but apparently asked for a, a blue and pink cake and Philip said, yeah, okay, I'll do that for you. And then this person said, and it's to celebrate my transition. And Jack Phillips said, well, no, actually, I'm, I'm not going to do that because that's... Uh, uh, not not uh, something I support and interested in supporting in any way. So, of course, he's uh, brought up on uh, charges under this Colorado anti-discrimination law. And then we just had an uh, appeals court ruling in Colorado against Jack Phillips. So the, the ordeal continues. Yes. And I care a great deal about this ordeal, not simply for reasons of Jack-based solidarity. Mm-hmm. And I'll explain why. I have a lot of faith, actually, is still in the institutions and systems, particularly of the American legal system. I, I think they're a, a great uh, reservoir of strength and show that time and time again, uh, particularly outside of uh, outside of like obviously the intelligence agencies, which have their own problems. But one thing that really confounds my my faith in those in that process is the treatment that Jack Phillips has been sub- subjected to now for. I think more than a decade. And just the the fact that this one person who is did not seek out any sort of uh, attention or fame has been uh, harassed and persecuted over and over again by people who, by now it is clear at this point, are singling him out and trying to make an example of him. It's just really bad. And the f- and that he is still enduring this after all this time, it's, it's really unsettling that it, that... Because the, the cases seem extremely clear-cut to me that he just has the, the right to do what he wants with his business, and yet people keep on dragging him back into the fray. I find that very disturbing. And I also find very disturbing what that the fact that these these Colorado... I, in this case, it's not the, the, the Civil Rights Commission. It's a, it's a court in the state. But the Colorado Civil Rights Commission seems to be an essentially uh, like quasi-Soviet-esque body and it's it's very strange because uh, Jared Polis, the governor, in in certain ways, he, he gets uh, sort of backhanded compliments from some on the right for being like the, the least bad Democratic governor. But on this stuff, he's just awful. And on this stuff, he embodies and his state increasingly em- embodies the uh, what I guess you would call uh, or what Marcuse would call the repressive tolerance of um that the that the less current incarnation demands that is not merely a live and let live the, the way that uh, th- these things were originally justified, but now is I have to be recognized in all of the the permutations of my identity, and and I demand the state the backing of the state and the culture to do it. And I, I just I feel terrible for this guy, I, Jack Phillips. I, I it just should have been resolved ages ago, and yet here he is still being singled out and harassed by people who just clearly want to destroy him and if if they do successfully destroy him would probably move on to other targets which is why this case has become so important and why he deserves our continued attention and defense as uh terrible as his plight continues to be yeah so charlie i jack jack makes a key point it's just it's not bothering anyone that there's this one Christian baker, you know, somewhere in Colorado who doesn't want to make these kind of cakes, right? There's no uh, lack of other sources of, of these cakes. You could easily go to the baker down the street and, and get them, but they won't leave him alone. It bo- his very existence bothers uh, them and is intolerable to them, and they want to go and crush this guy. They're creeps. They're illiberal creeps. It bothers me as much as the lack of resolution in court that our society has generated enough people to harass this man for a decade and that there are many institutions, some of which are supposed to be liberal, that have endorsed that harassment The notion, as you say, that the existence of Jack Phillips in any meaningful way warrants government intervention is preposterous. We have throughout our history, and indeed throughout the British history that preceded it, had certain exceptions to the free market. Monopolies and certain public accommodations. 
It's clearly not reasonable if you have the only barge crossing the river for you to pick and choose your customers. Likewise, even if you're not technically a monopoly, there are certain public accommodations, inns on public thoroughfares, for example, that arguably need rules that require them to take all comers. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was predicated upon the idea that while the analogy was imperfect, there were large geographical areas in the United States in which African Americans were simply unable to engage in commerce. That there wasn't just another sandwich shop in parts of the South. There wasn't just another barber because there were informal and formal rules that excluded black Americans from uh, being customers. But that's not true here. That's not even close to being true. The cake industry is not dominated by people who dissent from gay marriage. The website design industry is not dominated by people who dissent from gay marriage. The flower industry is not dominated. It is extremely easy to go somewhere else. We're not talking about Jackson, Mississippi in 1950. We're talking about one cake shop surrounded by cake shops that are quite willing to do whatever their customers request. And the people who have staged this assault on Jack Phillips for 10 years now cannot abide that. They are the aggressors. They are the people who are intolerant of difference, who talk about diversity but oppose it. I hope this is resolved in the courts, but it is a sickness, nevertheless, that it needs to be. That this has become a live issue, that people are lining up to keep this going, is a, is a sickness. And that sickness will remain even if the courts end up enforcing the Constitution in Jack Phillips's favor. So, MBD, a question to you. What you were, the possibility you were discussing earlier and with regard to education, which is kind of we blow up uh, any national curriculum and sort of let states and ultimately, hopefully, parents and students go their own way, that is a viable model going forward with regard to the entire uh, culture war. We, we all just... Uh, uh, go in and go into our individual uh, bunkers, and we're we're happy there, and that's it. Or that this is this is a fight where, uh, as we're discussing with Jack Phillips, where that's just not going to be plausible. Uh, it's not going to be. Uh, it's going to be different in different uh, institutions and and contexts. Uh, we're we're still going to have fights over. Um, you know, it, it'll be if it's not Jack Phillips in the court, which I think is a, a consequence of the way civil rights law is designed, both in Colorado and federally, um, which kind of makes that case inevitable, right? Cause it, just to, to, just to expand on what Charlie said, Charlie's right that J Jim Crow was a system of informal, formal state backed laws and uh, informal, you know, paramilitary enforced terror to prevent blacks getting in commerce. We have nothing like that uh, in the case of same-sex wedding cakes. But the remedy we made up for the South was that individual proprietors can't uh, discriminate on the basis of certain characteristics. And every, you know, everyone buying a same-sex wedding cake will argue that, well, this is a, a protected characteristic, my sexual orientation. So that fight is inevitable, and um, I imagine we're going to have tests of strength about that fight for at least another decade, um, unless someone can come up with a, a new principle that resolves the, the tension. 
So uh-huh. Jack Butler, an, another another way to formulate the question would be, you know, is, is the Benedict option for everyone? Is that going to be the ultimate solution to these kind of cultural war fights, or is that that not plausible? Um, I don't know if I would say Benedict option, but some some degree of decentralization and reinvigoration of federalism is utterly essential to resolving the the unsustainable stakes and nature of our current culture war fights. I, I, I think it'll, I think it just has to happen in, in some respects In other respects, uh, some issues will be inevitably national, but we should try to minimize the number of things that are national as much as possible. Um, and I, I so yeah, I, I, I think some of it should happen, probably will happen maybe after a protracted period of, uh, real political pain, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, that, that's where I come down. You can't resolve this with a Benedict option because the people who are engaged in the Benedict option would not be able to escape the borders of the United States and therefore the laws that we're discussing. Right, that's why some of the it old, remains inevitably national. It's the old line that you can have a socialist commune in a capitalist society, but you can't have a capitalist commune mm-hmm. in a socialist society. Now, if you have a society, as Jack suggests, with reinvigorated federalism and a broad understanding of the First Amendment and a cultural preference for diversity, then you can have as many Jack Phillipses as you like. You can also have all sorts of bakers who are gay or trans and just don't want to, for example, serve Republicans or think birthdays are offensive but not the other way around. There's mm-hmm. no scope for a Benedict option if these sorts of laws are to be enforced. Yeah, so uh, I agree with Charlie. I mean, I, obviously, I think to the extent we can have federalism, to the ex- extent we can, in education, uh, have choice for people, all, all that is is great, but uh, there there's no escape. There There is unfortunately no escape with that let's hit a few other things before we go mbd as is your want you've been listening to music and lately to uh tammy wynette yeah so i've I've been listening to more and more country music as i get older and um you know probably the most famous female country musician right now is casey musgraves who's kind of very au courant very you know like Kind of, progressive of course, value. I've never, never heard of her. Progressive values country. And then uh, in the last uh, week, a record club that I belong to sent me a reissue of Tammy Wynette's album, Stand By Your Man, uh, which is absolutely gorgeous. Like this, that era of country music in 1968, uh, the kind of traditionalist ethos of it, it just produces beautiful records. And, um, the whole album is like incredibly reactionary, right? Like obviously like stand by your man was, was held up for ridicule by Hillary Clinton uh, at one point, even though she did stand by her man. Yeah, I know (laughs) she was no Tammy Wynette, but she was a Tammy Wynette standing by her man. (laughs) Um, But uh, you know, there are other songs on it uh, like uh, cry, cry again, which is about a mother listening in on uh, her daughter, uh, praying and weeping that daddy comes home. And um, it's actually an incredibly moving cultural response to the disruption going on at the time. Uh, and it, it really repays the listening now. Jack Butler, you have been a guilty and somewhat reluctant Bengals fan because you know you don't deserve their success because you are not invested enough in the Bengals. Very much so. Yes, they were. I was delighted to jump on the bandwagon last year when the Bengals were in the Super Bowl and uh, delighted in a different way to join the chorus of NFL's rigged uh, because anytime the Bengals don't succeed, it's because the NFL is rigged. <laughs> I now believe that. Although I do believe there's a case oh, it that it must have been rigged quite a lot in the past. Then, <laughs> oh, you trust me. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really it's been really bad. I think there is a, I mean, certainly the NFL does want it, is trying really hard to make the Los Angeles market a thing, but this is a separate matter. But yes, the Bengals are doing well again. And I, I just have to say, as someone who grew up uh, in a period of extended Bengals mediocrity, I am unused to this and I am undeserving of it because as a result, partly of this extended period of me- mediocrity, I've never cared much for their <laughs> success. So, and I'm not totally 
it still seems implausible to me, although perhaps I should get more used to it. And yeah, I'm enjoying it. I have this, uh, even though I have, have been and still am in certain ways pretty much indifferent to it, I, I do like the, the way that having a good sports team sort of creates a, mm-hmm. a good feeling in a, in a city. I'm not, I don't live in Cincinnati right now, but I, I can attest that people are enjoying the success. Mm-hmm. I know this is a totally rudimentary and uh, jejun observation that Charlie will inevitably mock me for, but you know what? I'm going to embrace it anyway. So, so Charlie, uh, sad to say you, you've had some grievous cheating at the ga- card game Uno in the Cook household. This is, this is really too bad. Well, it was attempted cheating. My five-year-old didn't, in fact, get away with it, but he did try, and I cannot help but be a little bit impressed. What he did was stack three or four cards on top of each other and then make sure that they didn't visibly overlap and then imply that he had other cards under his seat and then put them all down as if he were just putting down one card and then look expectantly to see if he'd got away with it. The idea being that he had got rid of all four cards. He put the card that actually applied on the top. That was the visible one. And then he would say, ha ha, I don't have any more and I've won the game. This is, of course, rotten cheating. But he had thought the whole thing through. And uh, was uh, I was impressed by the effort. He sounds like a real troublemaker in the making. He is a real troublemaker in the making. Uh, that's awesome. So I was at a Capital Matters conference in New York City yesterday, sponsored by the National Review Institute. It was really a terrific event, a really full room, great spirit in the room, a lot, a lot of uh, great uh, uh, speakers from the uh, stage, and including Larry Kudlow and very prominently our own, the aforementioned David Bonson, and uh, really an intelligent engagement with, with some of the populist uh, critiques of a free market oriented uh, economics and just all around uh, a terrific event. So congratulations to all involved with that. It's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is Yuval Levin's piece, The Case for Moderate Pessimism on the Debt Ceiling. Uh, Yuval is our, our great eagle eye watcher of Congress, and uh, his piece argues that this time uh, – the way Congress is divided is not like the way it's been divided at previous debt ceiling standoffs. And so this is a, a, a very unique challenge. Uh, there's no model for it precisely, uh, which is a, a reason to be skeptical that it's going to get done. Jack Butler. My pick is Bobby Miller correcting the record on investment in and assistance to Ukraine. Uh, Bobby did a good job of pushing back on some, of the more spurious arguments uh, against uh, support of Ukraine. I think there are legitimate concerns about it, about support of Ukraine to raise, I, but I don't think the arguments that, that Bobby pushed back against are among them. So good job, Bobby. Charlie Cook. My piece is Christian Rosen from the magazine on supposed Russian disinformation. No, it's a good piece. Which didn't happen. There is this line, this idea out there that the Russians interfered and all of these people had their minds changed on Twitter and Facebook and they rushed out to vote for a candidate they'd never otherwise have considered. And as Christine Rosen points out, it's just nonsense. Have you seen some of those memes that the Russians uh, introduced into our bloodstream? They're, they're really funny, uh, some of them. I always love the way this is reported as well. They, the pieces say things like, and during the 2016 election, the Russians posted provocative political opinions on topics such as abortion and gun control. Like what? So the same as the candidates? <laughs> Why is yeah, it any I mean, different? The idea that um, you know political campaigns would pay a billion dollars if they could get five guys sitting at home that to sway an election with some some Twitter memes, you know, and the idea that some some guys sitting in Saint outside Saint Petersburg could do it—it's just totally was no that picture crazy. of. That drawing of Satan and Jesus arm wrestling, that really, that, that was crucial. Uh, uh, you have no idea. 
So my pick is by Carolyn Downey. She did this, uh, she focuses a lot on education and trans and sort of woke excesses and the and the culture, and it's titled Video Game Company Caves a Trans Activist Online Pressure Campaign Fires Targeted Employee. This is just shocking. It, it didn't, it uh, happened a little while ago, but just basically w- one trans person on Twitter got, got this woman fired for no reason whatsoever. And um, she, she finally, uh, this employee uh, is talking about her e- experience and talked about Carolyn, and it's a, a really impressive and disturbing piece. And speaking of Carolyn, by the way, she is part of our very inchoate video, YouTube uh, video effort. Um, and if you uh, are interested in, in her work and her opinions, you should check out our YouTube channel and look at her some, some of her short videos she's, she's done, which are um, uh, excellent. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National View podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National View magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks to Jackie B. Thanks to MBD and to Dividend Cafe. And especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.